You're listening to the New Hope Church podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the director of family ministries here at New Hope. And on behalf of our church staff and our church council, we're thrilled whether you're joining us here in person or joining us online, we're thrilled that you're here. And as we begin our time together today, what I'd like for you to do is I want you to think about somebody that you very highly respect. Somebody that you very highly respect. Why is it that you respect that person? Chances are it's probably because they've responded to adversity. They've responded to adversity. Maybe they're people who have walked through a fire or two. Maybe they've literally walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe they've been treated unfairly and they haven't responded the same way. Maybe they've been hurt, but they didn't hurt back. And so the question that I want us to kind of start with today is this idea of thinking about adversity and asking ourselves, when we encounter adversity, how can we be better for it? When we encounter adversity, how can we be better for it? Can we be better for it? And I think the answer to this question is a resounding yes, that we can be better for our adversity. And you may say, well, how is that possible? It's because we all need to understand that we have this special ability, this capability that dwells within every single one of us. And some of us may think we have it and we may think we don't. But it's what I'm going to entitle our respond ability. Our respond ability. And here's what I mean by that is that we have the ability, we have the capability to choose a response rather than having it dictated to us, or rather than simply choosing what is expected, or rather than saying, well, this has always been modeled for me, so it has to be right. We have a choice to respond or to react. Because maybe for some of you today, you're dealing with a situation and you kind of say, I really want to react to that, which is natural. That's okay. I get it. But what if instead of reacting, we chose to respond? Because as you remember, responding is choosing what to do rather than what's been dictated to you, what's expected or what's been modeled for you. And if you think about this idea, you say, okay, that's respondability. What is reaction? Well, reaction is simply summarized this way, is that to react to those circumstances, it sets us up to reflect those circumstances. Anybody ever had a disagreement with your spouse? We're not going to confess that in church, right? You ever had a disagreement with your kids? And you reacted maybe instead of responded. And what happened? You found yourself very quickly somewhere you didn't want to be. And maybe you've personally witnessed this. Maybe you say, well, it's not me. It's somebody that I know. We get it. It's okay. But here's the thing. 
is when you react instead of respond, what you do is you end up reflecting those circumstances or maybe even you're faced with outcomes that you never thought about. You see, when we do a reaction instead of a response, what we're actually doing is we're relinquishing control of our lives, of our destiny, of our legacy. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, I've already told you. You choose a response instead of a reaction. So I want to give you a simple definition of response today, which is this. The response that has the potential to reverse the natural course of things. But you notice those last few words, right? It isn't natural. It isn't natural for us to respond instead of react. But we have to choose a response instead of being tempted to miss it. So over the past few weeks, we've been looking at an Old Testament story. It's a story that many of us are familiar with. And if you're not, you just saw an amazing kids video that explained it like that for you. But we've been exploring the story of Joseph. And in this story, Joseph is a young man who was 17 when we pick up the story in Genesis 37. And when we pick up this story, what we see is that Joseph had opportunities to respond or to react to certain situations that he faced. And it took roughly 25 years before the story was resolved. Maybe some of you are looking for that quick fix today, but maybe you have to be like Joseph and wait, which isn't an easy thing to do. But here's what I would say about Joseph is that Joseph's story illustrates the sustaining, the course reversing, and I would even go so far as to say the sanity preserving power of choosing a measured response. And here's the thing. Joseph didn't know as his story was unfolding that it was going to be this great and grand and wonderful thing. He had no idea. Sure, we get the benefit of reading through this and of looking at this and saying, wow, we see how the story connects. But Joseph didn't have that luxury. He didn't even know that his story was a story worth telling. But thankfully, we get the benefit of seeing how a measured response over and over again is better than a reaction. So let's catch up on what we've covered so far. So Joseph was kidnapped by his brothers. He was sold twice, once to a group of slave traders. And then again in Egypt, he was sold on the slave trading block to Potiphar. He was framed by Potiphar's wife, and eventually he was thrown into prison. In other words, if you were an employer, and Joseph came at this point in the story, and he presented his resume to you, you'd probably go, nice, and go right on to the next one. You could say at this point of the story that nobody is looking for Joseph, and in fact, it doesn't even seem that anybody is looking out for Joseph. And maybe for you today, that's where you feel like your story intersects with Joseph's story because you feel like nobody's looking for you or nobody's looking out for you. But here's the thing about Joseph is even though it seemed like nobody was looking for him and nobody was looking out for him, Joseph responded every single time to every single situation as if God was with him. 
Joseph responded as if God was with him. And so the question that I really want us to wrestle with, and we're going to come back to at the end of this message today, is this idea of how would someone in your current circumstances, and I want you to make this personal, how would someone in your current circumstances respond all the stuff that you brought in with you, all the stuff that's going on in your lives that I know nothing about but you and God do, how would someone in your current circumstances respond if you were completely confident that God was with you? How would someone in your current circumstances respond if you were completely confident that God was with you? So let's pick up the story where we left off last week. Genesis chapter 39, verse 20. It says, So he took Joseph and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. You may remember from what Zach taught us last week that Joseph is placed in prison for something that he wouldn't do. Sounds fair, right? For something he wouldn't do, he was placed in prison. And maybe for you, you feel that way today because you think, well, I didn't do anything wrong or I didn't make that decision or it was something that happened to me. And in some circumstances, I get that's perfectly legitimate. But here's what I want you to understand is that in those moments of your life where maybe you feel like you're separated and nobody is looking for you or nobody is looking out for you. I think those are the moments that God leans in real close and he whispers real quietly. And it's difficult to hear sometimes because we don't want to shut out all the noise or the anxiety or all the distractions that are around us. But I think it's those moments that God leans in and he whispers to us, I'm right here with you. The story continues. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him faithful love. Now, I love this word. This is one translation from the New Living, but this word faithful that's given here at the end, it's actually translated different ways. It's translated loyal, steadfast love, or kindness. And this, the word kindness here that's used are faithful It's actually the Hebrew word for loving kindness. And you may say, well, why is that so important? Why is that so significant? Because the word in Hebrew used for loving kindness that's used here, it actually illustrates that Joseph believed he had a covenant relationship with God. That God was with him. No matter what, even though it seemed like God hadn't done anything him lately. So you may say, okay, that's great, but what does loving kindness look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, because guess what? The very next part of this verse tells us. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful, loving kindness love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Now, I don't know about you, but there are points in scripture that I read, and I kind of find myself questioning This is one of them. Because I think, first of all, Joseph is in prison for something he didn't do. But not only that, he's in prison and he becomes a favorite of the prison warden. Now, I don't know your story. I don't know if you've ever been in prison. Personally, I have not. 
thankfully. But what I will tell you is that if I was ever put in prison, I don't know that I would want to be known on a first name basis by the prison warden. That's not really somewhere you want to be. But Joseph was not only known by the prison warden, he was trusted and he was given leadership by the prison warden. Now months go by and Pharaoh, who's the most powerful person on the planet at that point in time, has a falling out with two officials, his cupbearer and his baker. And so what does he do? He throws them in prison. And guess which prison? The exact prison that Joseph is in. And this is where the story has one of the twists that come up. Because months have went by. And Joseph is a leader now in the prison as a prisoner. And he's caring for the cupbearer. He's caring for the baker. And one morning as he's serving them breakfast and kind of he looks at their faces, he notices that there's something going on. There's something wrong that they're not, you know, their energetic, joyful selves, which I don't know if that happens in prison. But he notices that something is different. And he says, what happened? What transpired? And they tell him this story. They say, well, we had dreams. We both had a dream. And we don't know what the dreams mean, but we know they're significant. And so Joseph tells them, he says, go ahead and tell me your dreams. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. And I can imagine the two of them kind of pushing each other aside. And the cupbearer steps up first and he says, okay, he says, here's my dream. And he lays it all out. <laughs> and Joseph responds with some really good news. Because here's what he says. He says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. Pretty good news, right? But Joseph kind of takes it a step further because he says, okay, I want you to understand something. You're about to be restored to your position, which is really good for you, but I'm still here. And need I remind you, I'm still here for something I didn't do. And so what I want you to do is when you're restored to your position, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him about this great guy that you met in prison. Because while you may think I have a, a, a good cushy deal right here, I want out. I want to be free again. And so he sees an opportunity and he takes it and he tells the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh well, the baker, who's been, I can imagine, only impatiently waiting close by, because he hears the great news that the cupbearer gives. He says, hey, hey, okay, you've had your turn. Now it's my turn. And so he steps up to Joseph, and he tells him his dream. And this is a point where when we read it, I really think Joseph, my personal opinion, should have said, hmm, that's a tough one. I don't know that I can help you. But he doesn't do it. He responds, and here's what he says. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. Then the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. But the baker's like, can I have his dream? <laughs> I don't like my dream. And sure enough, three days later, Pharaoh's birthday happens, and exactly what Joseph predicted transpires. The cupbearer is restored to his position. And the baker is beheaded. But Joseph, who's still in prison, remember, 
thinks this is his shining moment. This is the moment where he's going to be restored, where he's going to get out of prison, where surely the cupbearer is going to tell Pharaoh and all of this is going to happen. But as the story continues in Genesis 40, 23, it says, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Two more years go by. Just let that sink in for a second. He had his moment. He thought he was getting out of prison and two more years go by. And Joseph, who was supposed to be somebody that had a covenant relationship with God, that God was with, was supposed to be restored, but he's still in prison. And he hears a story that Pharaoh has had these weird dreams that nobody has been able to interpret. And at this point, the cupbearer, yeah, you remember him, right? The cupbearer finally remembers about Joseph. And so what does he do? He says, hey, there's this great guy. He's in prison. I met him while I was there. He was my cellmate. No, I'm just kidding. But as you think about this, he says, I want you to go and I want you to get him because I guarantee he can interpret the dreams. And so Pharaoh listens to him and he calls for Joseph to be summoned from prison and Joseph comes before him. And I want you just to understand the magnitude of this scene because this wasn't somebody who was in Pharaoh's court. It wasn't somebody who was an equal with Pharaoh. It was Joseph who was a foreigner in the land who it seemed like God had done nothing for lately, who was waiting for his big break. And in Genesis 41, here's what we see happen. It says, this is Joseph's reply. It is beyond my power to do this. Now at this point, as those words come out of Joseph's mouth, I can imagine the cupbearer who's been waiting for his his moment, you know, to be like, hey, I told you about this guy. He suddenly kind of shrinks into the corner and he's like, I'm going back to jail. This is the end of the road for me. I'm going to end up like the baker. Probably all these thoughts were going through his mind. But that's not the end of the verse because Joseph actually says this. He says, it is beyond my power to do this. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Now we read that and we think that's great. But the reality is, is this was a problem for Pharaoh because Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. In fact, he believed that he worshipped several other gods that were far greater in his mind than the Hebrew god. But Joseph says, let me tell you anyway. And so he tells him what the dreams mean. And although this could have been really offensive to Pharaoh, because remember, he thought of himself as a god. He worshipped other gods. But he tells Pharaoh the dream because he's still curious. And so Joseph listens intently. He tells him, he says, here's what your dreams mean, that over the next seven years, you're going to have an abundant harvest of grain. You're going to have more food than you know what to do with. But then, for the next seven years, nothing will grow. And then I love what Joseph does here because he takes the moment He could have just stopped, but he takes the moment and he leans into Pharaoh. Remember, the most powerful person at that time. He leans into Pharaoh and he says, let me kind of give you some advice on what you should do. He says, you should tell someone 
That this is their focus. This is their sole purpose is to figure out a plan of how to take care of our nation and how to take care of the surrounding areas. Not just for the seven years of plenty, but for the seven years of famine that are going to come. The story continues on. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, just think about how you would feel if somebody said this about you. Clearly, no one else is as intelligent or as wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne will have a higher rank than yours. Joseph gets out of prison. He goes to work preparing Egypt for the seven years of famine. He builds storehouses in all the major cities. He purchases grain from the people, and as is common with supply and demand, more food comes in, guess what? The price goes down, and he buys, and he buys, and he buys. And seven years later, the rain stops, and nothing will grow. There's a famine And everybody in Egypt would have starved. But Joseph opens up the storehouses in the city. He sells grain to the people in Pharaoh's name. But the the famine went just beyond Egypt. It stretched to the north where Joseph's family lived. And at this point, there's another twist in the story because Joseph's family begins to starve. And his dad tells him, hey, he tells his brothers, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to get us some grain so we can live. Now in the coming scene, there's so much drama, the stage is set, that fortunes have been reversed. His brothers haven't seen him in several years. In other words, this is the ultimate test for Joseph. Will he react or will he respond? And we know, as we just saw in this video, that when they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger. You see, in this moment, Joseph remembered the fear and the terror of having his beautiful robe that his dad had given him torn from his body. He remembered the dampness of the pit. He wondered if the brothers would forget about him while he was there. He remembered the leer of the slave traders. He remembered the humiliation of being sold on the auction block. And he most importantly remembered the hopelessness of prison. But then he does the most remarkable thing as he's toying with the idea of what to do in this moment. And he begins a conversation with his siblings And he asks them about his dad, and they tell him, yes, your father's still alive. And oh, by the way, Benjamin, your youngest brother, they still don't know who he is, but Benjamin, we have another brother who's back at home. And Joseph says, this is great. I want you to go get Benjamin, and I want you to come back. You see, Joseph, when they come back, defies expectations. He defies instincts and emotions. Because this is the point of the story where all of his brothers are gathered before him. And what does he do? He tells everybody else to get out, leaving just his brothers and him. And he makes a declaration. He says, I am Joseph. Now, at this moment, I can just imagine the fear that has overtaken the brothers. That they're like, what? 
I don't like the position I'm in right now. But before they can even get a word out, he has conversation with them about their father. And he goes on and he tells them, even though you're terrified, you don't need to be. Even though you've been absent from my life, you don't need to worry. Because guess what? Every single day, God was present with me. You see, in this moment, Joseph chooses to respond by forgiving his brothers. You see, when we're able to respond and believe that God is with us, we gain a perspective on what's behind the circumstances that we can't gain any other way. Joseph knew that God had a plan for his suffering, for his injustice, for his circumstances. And here's the thing, probably like some of the situations that you're facing today, the, the circumstances that Joseph was facing were not ones that he would have chosen for himself. But if we respond... Instead of react, we have the ability to successfully move into our future. Now, here's the beautiful thing that no one could have known about this encounter. Is that God's plan for salvation for the world hung by a thread, which was Joseph's response. Think about it for just a moment. Joseph is there in a position of power. His brothers are right before him who represent the 12 tribes of Israel who will eventually bring about the Messiah who one day will do for the world what Joseph did for his brothers on that day. Now as the story wraps up, what we get to see is this idea that we need to never underestimate the power of a measured response. Never underestimate the power of a measured response. Because Joseph responds with forgiveness and he brings his family to Egypt to live. And eventually his father Jacob passes away and they bury him. They have an elaborate funeral. And as they return to Egypt, there's a moment of panic in the brothers again. Because they're like, he was just nice to us because daddy was still here. And daddy's gone. And we're going to have a problem now. And so as we see in Genesis chapter 50, it says, Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves. But Joseph responds with this beautiful sentiment. He says, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? In the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, it actually states it this way. It says, Do not be afraid, for I am God's. I belong to God, and since I am God, who am I to attempt to take the place of God? He goes on and he reminds him, he says, you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me. In that moment, I mean, think about this, what Joseph had been through. His brothers had all the power. The odds were in their favor. There was evil in their hearts that, sit, that turned situations like this where the victim typically becomes a perpetrator. But this time the story was different. Because he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. He had no idea how powerful that statement really was. And if you look at the story of Joseph, you could actually say it this way, that God's intention 
became reality. Through one man's catalytic, unprecedented, circumstance-defying responses. I mean, think about this. If we took Joseph's responses and we just took them one by one, they really don't hold any significance for us. None of them really seem that significant one by themselves. But when you put them together, what you see is God's unfolding plan of redemption for the world that includes you. You see, our respondability gives us the opportunity to be better for facing our adversity. We don't choose the things that we're going through, but our responses determine whether or not we're better for them. It all boils down to this question that I gave you earlier. How would someone in my, make it personal, how would someone in my circumstances respond if they were confident that God was with them? How would someone in your circumstances respond if you were confident that God was with you? You see, your answer to this question is your best way forward. Because if you act on this, you will emerge from whatever adversity you're facing and you'll be better for it. But we have to remember that we're no better than our responses but our responses have extraordinary potential to make both us and the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.